Well, hey, everyone. So good to be with you today. If you are joining us for the first time, special welcome to you. My name is Jason Wooliver. I'm the directing pastor here at Crossroads Global Methodist Church. Today, we're starting a new Advent message series called Christmas, What You Need to Know. And today we're in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. I'm going to be walking through that passage during the message, so if you want to open your Bible or pull that up on your phone and just keep it open, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, but let me pray before we jump in. Dear God, I thank you that you love us so much. Thank you that you're with us wherever we're listening or watching today. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would enliven our minds strengthen us, illuminate us to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. So ever since Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th, I've been getting questions from people about whether I think that these events are demonstrations that we are living in the end times. People have asked for my view on whether these attacks on Israel are fulfillments of specific end-time prophecies. And I've spoken with other pastors about their thoughts on these matters, and opinions are all across the board about how to interpret end-time prophecies found in the Bible. And there are four or five main viewpoints on the end times, which are held by different respected conservative Bible scholars, and I think they all have different strengths and weaknesses, all of these views. If you want to know my personal view on the end times, I would loosely classify myself as a partial preterist historic premillennialist. Partial preterist historic premillennialist. Now, if those words don't make sense to you, good for you. That means you have better things to do than read books about the end of the world. But if you wanted to read a book which explains that view, and I find very compelling, it's an older book written by the late R.C. Sproul called The Last Days According to Jesus. And what that view basically means is that I think there's evidence that almost every prophecy that Jesus made about what would need to happen before he returns has already been fulfilled, at least in part. I believe that Jesus is free and clear to return at any moment. Do I believe that what's happening now is fulfillment of end-time prophecy? Sure. And I believe that what happened in 70 AD when Jerusalem was sacked by the Romans and then the great persecution of Christians in the early centuries and even in late centuries, that all of this has been fulfillment of biblical prophecy. But people have been trying to predict the end of the world every few years, ever since I was born, and we're still around. So I think we need to accept the fact that we aren't going to know ahead of time when Jesus is returning. Jesus himself said that he is coming at an hour that we do not expect. Here's the what we need to know, though, for today. What we need to know is that he is coming back, and he's coming back soon. This is the first Sunday in the season of Advent, which leads up to Christmas. And Advent comes from the Latin word adventus, which means 
coming. And during Advent, one of the things we do is prepare to celebrate the first coming of Jesus when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, almost 2,000 or around 2,000 years ago. But Advent is so much more than that. If you look at the earliest times that Advent was celebrated, in about the 400s or so, you'll see that Advent was a time of fasting and repentance for people to make sure that they were ready for the second Advent, the second coming of Christ. Now, there are hundreds of Bible verses which speak about the return of Christ and the judgment that will take place at that time. Today, we're going to be looking at just one of those passages, which I think is always relevant. It's this passage from 2 Peter. Now, the book of 2 Peter was written shortly before Peter was martyred under Emperor Nero of the Roman Empire, sometime between 64 and 67 AD. And Nero was a complete lunatic. In 64 AD, he himself set Rome on fire, but then he blamed the Christians for the fire, and this resulted in full-scale, violent, nightmarish persecution against the Christians. They were put to death in all kinds of public, gruesome, horrific ways. In fact, many early believers thought that Nero was the Antichrist. So 2 Peter is thought to be a farewell discourse from Peter before he's executed. So starting in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing, following their own evil desires. So this is the second time in Second Peter that Peter has spoke of stirring people up by way of reminder. 18th century English writer Samuel Johnson once said that people need to be reminded more than they need to be instructed. And this is definitely the case for us Christians. In most situations we find ourselves in, throughout the day, throughout our life, we've already received the instructions that we need to get through that circumstance. We've already heard sermons or Bible stories telling us what attitude we should take in any situation, what kind of prayers we should be praying, what Bible verses we should be clinging to. What we need to do in the midst of the situations of life, though, is to remember what we've already been taught. This is one of the reasons that we need to be in church each week, to be reminded of what we've already learned, who we are, whose we are, and how God has equipped us to deal with life's challenges through the Word of God and the Spirit of God. In this case, Peter is reminding them about the prophecies of the Old Testament prophets and Jesus about his return and the command that we need to repent and be ready. And he's saying that there would be people scoffing at the Christian teaching of Christ's return and trying to lead Christians astray and caught up in all kinds of immorality. He said, scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing 
and following their own desires. Now, people will often ask me, do I think we're living in the last days? And the answer is yes, absolutely. In the Bible, the last days are simply the time between the first and the second comings of Jesus. And we are in it, folks. The early Christians believed that Jesus would return in their lifetime. And they weren't waiting for X, Y, and Z to happen before he came back. They were waiting for him to come back. And we should be too. But this belief led to ridicule by these scoffers, these false teachers. In verse 4, Peter says, They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So these false teachers were mocking the Christians because they still believed that Jesus would return, even though it had been 30 years since Jesus left. And so they were saying, where's his promise? He's not coming back. Now, people still make this argument against Christianity today. The next to last verse in the Bible has Jesus saying, Behold, I am coming soon. But almost 2,000 years have passed since that was written, and he still hasn't returned. Now, these scoffers that Peter is referring to were making their argument on the basis of what is sometimes called uniformitarianism which says that all natural phenomena have operated uniformly since the beginning of the earth. And these scoffers were arguing that ever since the time of the fathers, that's Isaac, Abraham, and Jacob, that creation has continued as it was since the earth was created. And Peter says these folks are deliberately misleading you because their argument is skipping over the cataclysmic event of the global flood, which took place after creation and before the time of the fathers. He says they're trying to trick you. They know things haven't been the same since the beginning of creation. And the flood that took place in the days of Noah happened because the human race on planet Earth had become so desperately wicked. It says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, that the thoughts of their hearts were only evil all the time. That's pretty bad. So God decided to flood the earth and start over with the only righteous person on earth, Noah, and his family, and the animals that he took on the ark. And then God flooded the earth and started over with Noah. And God promised that he would never destroy the world again in that way with water. And he gave the rainbow as the sign that people would see to remember that God wouldn't destroy the world again by water. But Peter says that doesn't mean he won't judge the earth again. He says in verse 7, By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And there are many references 
to judgment and fire throughout the Bible. For example, John the Baptist said that Jesus would baptize people with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The Holy Spirit baptism is what believers can receive here and now in this time, in these last days. The baptism with fire is going to come at the return of Christ, and his winnowing fork will be in his hand. He'll gather the wheat to himself, and he'll throw the chaff into unquenchable fire. Check out this passage from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul writes, This will happen when Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. So, Jesus said he was coming back soon, but he's still not back. What's the deal? Is he leaving us hanging down here? Did he just get situated in heaven and say, you know what, earth can just take care of itself. Let's just sit and watch the world turn and watch them just destroy themselves. What's the deal? Why isn't he back? Peter explains why Jesus hasn't returned yet in verses 8 and 9. He says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter says that reason that Jesus is so long in returning is because the people, the reason people think he's so long in returning is because they're seeing things from a human point of view rather than God's point of view. Prior to the flood of Noah's day, we read in the scriptures that people were living to 900 years. Since the flood and the dramatic chains of condition on the earth, people now only live a handful of decades. Currently, the life expectancy in the U.S. is 77.28 years. That may not seem high, but it's about five years higher than most other places on earth. So from our point of view, 70, 80 years old, the 2,000 years since Jesus left, it feels like eternity. But God has always existed. He exists outside the limits of time as we know it. And when God makes a promise, he makes it from his vantage point, not ours. That's why when we say that, that God is failing to keep some promise to us in a hard time, it in fact is the case that we are just being desperately impatient because God will come through in the right time and it's really only a blip on the screen of eternity. You see, God is not impatient. And the reason, and Peter says the reason that Christ hasn't returned yet is because he's giving us more time. More time for what? More time to repent and turn to Jesus ourselves. More time for us to tell as many people as possible about Jesus. 
This is why we all need to learn how to share the gospel with others, how to share our testimony with others, and how to invite people to church to meet with God with us. He's waiting to give us more time because he wants everyone to be ready when he returns. You know, sometimes when people ask me if I think we're living in the last days, it feels like they're asking, Jason, is it time that we need to get real serious about evangelism? Is it is time running out? Do I need to focus more on sharing my faith? As if knowing that we might only have a short time left would motivate people to do what Christ has commanded us to do all along. So let me just be clear, friends. Time is running out. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4, 7, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Peter continues in verse 10 of 2 Peter 3, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You know, there's been a great deal of reflection around this sudden day of judgment that will come upon the earth. The theological consensus seems to be that this day will include a refining fire which will burn away all that exists in the universe that is not suitable for eternity. If we look at the story of the great flood, we see that God didn't judge the earth to finally be done with humanity or animal life or even the planet. He judged it so that he might begin again. God saved the few who were deemed righteous, and he restarted with them. When Christ returns, his presence will instantly expose everything for what it is. And his fire will burn away that which is not suitable for the renewed heaven and the renewed earth that God will inaugurate. And everyone who's been declared righteous, not of their own goodness, but through repentance and faith in Jesus as their Savior, those people will pass through the judgment and their characters will be purified and perfected in the process and we will receive our resurrection bodies just as Jesus did on Easter. Now, I was thinking about this and it made me think of those rug cleaning videos that people are watching. Have you seen these rug cleaning videos? I have a daughter that's obsessed with these. They are time-lapse videos of these filthy disgusting dirty rugs as they're taken through this extensive multiple step cleaning process and at the end when you want to stop watching because you're like where is this going this beautiful multicolor rug will emerge where you believe there was nothing but dirt and grime it's fascinating to watch now when i first saw one of those i thought i would never keep a rug that dirty I would throw it away and buy a new one. But someone sees those rugs as worth redeeming and they make them new and those rugs live again. If I were God, I might just throw this world away and start all over again with a different type of creature in a galaxy far, far away. But God doesn't do that. He sent his son to die for us to save the world. And he'll finish the process when he returns. He takes something old and makes it beautiful and new. Then Peter applies all this to how we should live now. 
verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. From these final verses of this section, let me share some closing applications. First, Peter says, in light of this information, we need to hold our attachments loosely. He's like, all this stuff that you're so obsessed about, all this stuff that you're chasing after, all this stuff you think you need, it's not going to pass through into eternity with you. So hold it loosely. It's what he's implying here. The Apostle Paul said something similar in 1 Corinthians 7. He said, let me say this, my dear brothers and sisters, the time that remains is very short. Those who weep or who rejoice or who buy things should not be absorbed by their weeping or their joy or their possessions. Those who use the things of this world should not become attached to them. For this world as we know it will soon pass away. You know, people fret and stress and scrape to try to attain things in this brief life. Possessions accumulate houses or cars or toys, and they want positions and recognition. None of that are you going to be able to carry into eternity. So live in light of eternity. Invest more and more in your life with God, the stuff that will last through. Number two is keep your life holy. He says, since all these things are going to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And our family farm down in Cumberland County, uh, there's this wall hanging that's been hanging above my grandmother's stove since I was a kid. And I saw it. It's still there when I went deer hunting a couple weeks ago. And it says this, Rules for today. Do nothing that you would not like to be doing when Jesus comes. Go to no place that you would not like to be found when Jesus comes. Say nothing that you would not like to be saying when Jesus comes. Those are great rules. Don't be doing anything anytime that you don't want to be caught doing when Jesus comes. It's always a rule for today because today could be the day. So live a life of holiness and godliness, devotion to God. Number three is share the good news daily. He says we should be hastening the coming of the day of God. How do we hasten the coming of the day of God? By doing the work that Jesus has allowed us time to do. We need to repent if we haven't done so. And we need to be sharing our faith with as many people as we can, praying them into the kingdom, inviting them to join us for worship, trying to help them come to accept the forgiveness that Jesus offers. Number four, in light of these, we need to take the hope seriously. He says in verse 13, according to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The phrase heaven and earth, they're a way of speaking of the universe, all created things. And 
the word righteousness, it's this great, great word. My favorite definition of it is the state of something that is how it ought to be. That's what righteous means. And he says, we're waiting expectantly for this new, renewed heaven and earth where everything is as it ought to be. Oh, the crime, the sickness, the hatred, the contempt, the nastiness, the killing, all of it. That's not how things ought to be. We long for a home. We long for a place without corruption, without disease. And that's because we long for a home that we will one day receive when Jesus returns. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Friends, set your hopes on all that is to come. The new heaven, the new earth, that Jesus will inaugurate at the second advent and his return, which may happen any day now. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you give us a chance to respond, to be ready. And I pray for everyone listening that we would take your word to heart, that we would believe that you lived for us, that you died for us, and that you're coming back. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to really repent and really put our hope in you. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to really um, reach out to those this Christmas season and invite them to be a part of this life that you're offering us, which begins here and goes on forever. And now we pray that prayer that you taught us as we say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And now let us declare together what we believe. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Be sure to subscribe so that you can be notified of our most recent content. If you have any comments or questions for us, feel free to jump over to WashingtonCrossroads.com. Thank you again and have a great week.